From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, I'm joined by Ohio State University Professor Richard Shields for part one of a two-part discussion about the writing of history and the surprising political controversies surrounding the Newark Earthworks. Then I'll talk to February 26th six-string performers Carrie Elkin and Danny Schmidt about commitment, songwriting, and how to kill an herb garden. Stay tuned. Richard Shields is an associate professor of English at Ohio State, specializing in American colonial and American religious history. He directs the Newark Earthworks Center, an interdisciplinary center for studying and teaching about ancient earthworks and Native American history and life. He has collected numerous honors, including the 2010 Alumni Award for Distinguished Teaching from Ohio State. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Richard Shields. Good to be here. Good. Well, let's start with your background. All right. As a history professor, what were you like as a history student? I was a double major, actually, in history and philosophy, and was very, very interested in sort of the history of ideas. Uh, that was the mid-1960s. I was very interested in abolitionism and uh, pacifism before the Civil War. I've, I've always sort of been interested in uh, people driven by great ideas to try to improve the world, I suppose, and found it was fun to do that uh, looking at the past. It was fun to it, do that. It is. Define that as fun for me. How is it? How, <laughs> because a lot of people will take a history course, and I don't know that fun is the thing sure. that they bring. Well, you've it. got to get beyond memorizing dates. You've got to get beyond chronology and straight uh, facts to ideas, uh, to meaning. Uh, and what I find particularly fascinating are people who discover that some of their principles conflict. You know, abolitionists uh, who desperately wanted to end slavery but were radical pacifists find themselves in a situation in which there's this war and the war promises uh, to end slavery but they're absolutely opposed to war. Uh, I find issues, the stories of people mm -hmm. wrestling with their own principles, fun. Okay. My idea of a good time. All right. Well, that's good. That's, uh, it, it's glad that will be the segment opener. All right. The history professor's idea of a good time. Yes, right. <laughs> you don't want to hang out with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> that brings up, you know, conflicting interpretations. Sure. Right? You're, you're talking about uh, conflicting ideas of what should or shouldn't be done, say, sure. with radical pacifists, which is in itself an interesting phrase, a radical pacifist. Okay. It suggests almost um, an anachronism, uh, not I an anachronism, military intelligence, something like that, where I you've see. got two opposing views, right, exactly, I'm forgetting sure. the term for it. But when you look back at this and you say, I think I see this argument, this self-argument, this tension within this person, this tension within this movement right. about these writers, these people that are uh, leaving things behind, what can we know about it and, and how do you know about it? How do you find that out as a history? writer? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that you're never going to know everything you want to know, right? Mm -hmm. um, I suppose that's true about anything, but especially when you're studying the past, uh, you're, you have a lot of information or a little information, but you never have it all. Uh, I talk about it as a process in which you're putting together the pieces of a puzzle. Uh, and the striking thing is that you know very well some of the pieces are missing. When you do ancient history, most of the pieces are missing. Uh, and there's no picture on the box, you know. There's, uh, you've sort of put them together in various ways to see how they work, uh, knowing that the picture that you produce is provisional. 
that there may very well be new pieces that appear in the future or somebody who looks at it very, very differently. Uh, well, that's got to be especially true. I mean, if you move from something like radical abolitionists, where you do have some connection, some writing, um, say, sure. or other people writing about them, to going to the ancient past, you don't have the characters, you don't have the people. That's you right. have to assume the story, which for something like the earthworks seems to me exceptionally difficult. Sure it is. We have these massive earthworks in Ohio, uh, and we have no textual information to go with them, right? Mm -hmm. There are no diaries and letters from the people who built them saying who they were or why they did this. Uh, and so it really is very much a process of putting together the pieces of the puzzle, knowing that most pieces are missing. And you begin by looking at what's there on the ground. You look at the, the earthworks themselves. In Newark, we have an octagon, uh, which encompasses 50 acres. The walls are six feet high, connected to a circle, which encompasses another 20 acres. Uh, it turns out that when you analyze them the way a surveyor would do, the geometry is astounding. Uh, it turns out that there were earthen enclosures like this all over Ohio, we know of. 600 earthen enclosures built in ancient times. I don't mean little humpy mounds. I mean walls of dirt that define a space that you can walk into. Most of them were circles or squares or octagons that were 150 or 250 feet across. In Newark, we have a circle that's 1,200 feet across. Uh, absolutely mammoth. So you study those things and you study as many of them as you can. Today we're using LIDAR, which is to say we're using imagery uh, that employs satellite uh, sightings. Uh, and we find regularities. The circle, which is attached to the octagon in Newark, is 1,054 feet in diameter. All over the state of Ohio we find features that somehow have that measurement built into them, mm -hmm. 1,054 feet, or half of that, or a quarter of that. Uh, and then what really becomes fascinating is that we find that these things may very well align with the summer solstice or winter solstice, or in the case of the octagon in Newark, the 18.6-year cycle of the moon. That's a matter of studying the physical remains. Mm -hmm. uh, and. That takes you a long way. It's astounding to discover how much these people understood geometry and astronomy. It still leaves you asking the question, what in heaven's name were these built for? Right, you know? I mean, you start, you, you start stepping back from that. Um, it's stepping back in one way, but in the other way, trying to create that story, the narrative sure. of history. Sure. And then it becomes, I think, one of those really simple, well, we assume that they <laughs> did this or right. that. And, right. and it seems to me that, that that's the part where you become uh, other than saying, you know, the one part is just, here are statistics. All right. Here's what we've got. The other part right. is, here's our assumption about why they did this, the 18-year sure. cycle of the moon. Sure. And putting those two things together in some sort of narrative form that's going to bring in your students, uh -huh. that's the trick. That that's is the, the difficult. That is the trick. So how do you do that? In three sentences. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you put together the pieces and come up with the best interpretation you can. Okay. And you talk to students about the problem. I try to be very upfront because every group I speak to wants me to give them a definitive answer. What were these, who built them, and why? 
And I need to make it very clear that we're never going to have that. Mm -hmm. uh, that the process is, as I've described, a, a process of piecing things together. Uh, of course, there are artifacts in the ground that help. Um, we know that those little humpy mounds were burial mounds. We know where the burials were in Newark. They were not in the octagon. They were not in this huge circle. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't uh, a burial site. Uh, go to Cahokia, this wonderful mound complex in southern Illinois, directly across the Mississippi from St. Louis. Cahokia was a city of 30,000 people in the year 1200. We know that from what's in the ground. Nothing like that is in the ground in Newark. Our earthworks were not a residential site. This was not a city. This was not a place where large numbers of people lived. And you know that because you don't have broken pottery. You don't have shards. You don't have... Because what you have is places. very limited. And you, you determine, or the archaeologists determine, uh, that small groups of people were here over the long run and larger groups perhaps came for a few months at a time. You find artifacts made of shells from the Carolinas and of copper from Wisconsin and of obsidian from the Grand Canyon. Uh, that tells us that these people were at least trading over a very long distance. You go to the other end of what we call the Hopewell interaction sphere and you find items made of Flint Ridge Flint. Uh, Flint Ridge is about 14 miles from the Great Circle. Uh, it's an outcropping of very colorful, very unique flint. So they were trading, perhaps, items, spear points, things like that, made of Flint Ridge Flint for items made of obsidian from the Grand Canyon and, and mm -hmm. so on. And that begins to tell you that they're connected. We're actually at the place, those of us at who work at the Newark Earthwork Center are at the place where we think they're actually traveling to come here. Uh, we think that in part because of the location. Uh, these earthworks are on the Licking River, which takes you to the Muskingum River, which takes you to the Ohio River, which takes you to the Mississippi River. You can get here from a very long Paddling distance. against current. Well, <laughs> it may be, or simply walking along the right, side of the water. Side. Yes, exactly. Uh, but we talk as much as we can, as often as we can, with native people. Uh, and they come to this site and they say, almost always, they come to this site and they say, this is a place you would have come to for ceremony. And you think about how it's built to align with the 18.6 year cycle of the moon. Mm -hmm. That suggests to me ceremony, something spiritual. It's an 18.6 year cycle. Every time it happens, it's a different season. It doesn't help you figure out when to plant your crops or when to do this or that. So why would you build such a massive complex to align with an 18.6 year cycle I'm ready to say it must have been important to be here when the moon was in a particular place. <laughs> and that, to me, suggests ceremony. Mm -hmm. Have you been there d during that, that cycle? And, a number of times. And, and what do you observe when it's at that, uh, it's starting that cycle? What is, is there, is the moon in a particular relation to it? Do you sure. think, okay, so this could be the start of this story. This could be a narrative of 
rebirth or something. Very possibly. It is an 18.6 year cycle, a very strange cycle by our way of thinking. There are actually eight times in the cycle in which the moon seems to change direction in the sky. Now we're talking about the place on the horizon where the moon first sets and the place where it first rises. Uh, there are eight times when it seems to change direction and all eight of those are built into this massive octagon. The central axis of the octagon is built to align with the northernmost rising of the moon. That happened in 2006 and we read uh, the information that NASA puts out and we knew when that was going to happen. Uh, and we thought it would happen once every 18.6 years, once in a generation, we said. Well, that's true. There's once in 18.6 years when it's at the northernmost point. Mm -hmm. But it turns out there are a dozen times over a three-year span when it's so close to that that without scientific instrumentation, you can't tell the difference. I've seen it five times. Mm -hmm. And I've been there at least that many times when it was raining or the sky was so cloudy that you couldn't see the moon at all. And I expect that was true 2,000 years ago. It must be a big disappointment. Well, You're there for a ceremony. Sure Weather doesn't permit sure it. Sure enough. So. Sarah Kidwell, who is, uh, Clara Sue Kidwell, who is uh, the director of a Native American center at the University of North Carolina, came for one of these events. And she talked about people coming out 2,000 years ago to pray up the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, now that's speculation on her part, but what a wonderful story. They must have come knowing it might happen, mm -hmm. but there were plenty of times when it wouldn't. Okay. Uh, and they came, we think, for ceremony. Join me next time for part two of my discussion with OSU professor Richard Shields as we delve into the surprising politics of the Newark Earthworks in which a country club mysteriously acquired 100 years of leasing rights from the Ohio Historical Society to some of the few remaining Native American earthworks in Ohio. Before then, though, on February 26th, six-string concerts will host singer-songwriters Danny Schmidt and Carrie Elkin. More information is available about the concert at www.writerstalk.org. But now, let's talk to them. Schmidt and Carrie Elkin. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Well, tell us about your upcoming performance for Six String Concerts. Uh, I know that you've got some albums that you're uh, probably going to be selling there. I'm sorry, CDs. That was my age. And uh, tell me about working on some of them and writing some of the songs. What songs will you be performing when you come here? Uh, well, first off, it's a treat that we're getting to play the show together. Um, we're usually uh, sort of heading in different directions, touring solo, and every now and then the tours line up so that we get to share a show together. It's a special treat um, because, uh, well, we like each other a lot, <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's just nice to get to um, sing on each other's tunes, and we, we usually format the show where we are up there together and we just swap tunes back and forth, and um, it's fun for us, and I think that fun transfers over to the crowd when it works. Yeah. And we're both, um, this is just the beginning of touring. Both of us have new records out um, on Red House, and mine was released uh, 
in the middle of January, and Danny's was released a week ago today. And um, so it's exciting to be able to tour the records together, for sure. So tell me about the writing of these new records. What led you into the album Call It My Garden, Carrie? Well, um, the title just comes from, (laughs) it's a little bit of a long story, but I was home for a short amount of time and uh, decided I wanted to be a Becky Homecky, if you will. And I planted a little herb garden and uh, quickly went away on tour and came back. And of course, the herb garden was dead. And so I... uh, then decided that uh, the only garden that I could kind of keep alive is one with um, a bunch of <laughs> broken glass in it. I, I'm kind of a klutz, and so everything I would break, I would put into this little um, this little planter on my porch, and it actually turned into this really beautiful thing, and it became representative of sort of the things um, we give up to be able to tour full-time and do what we love to do, and um, so that's kind of where the the original title was Garden of Broken Glass, which sounded sort of depressing. <laughs> so what you're suggesting is if people bring gifts to you, uh, you want them to stay away from ceramic and glass. <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I, if they don't mind it breaking, then... <laughs> yeah, or all gifts have to be considered sort of mandalas. <laughs> okay, just bring shattered things to the... Okay. Right. So that's that's kind of where the title comes from, and and um, I think the songs are reflective of of the title. Each song has a, a little theme of um, of what I've sort of given up to be a full time touring musician, and then also um, what I've gained. So anyway, how about your record title, Danny? <laughs> Man of many moons. This particular group of songs seemed pretty intimate to me. And kind of, a lot of them anyway, kind of revolved around a theme of coming to terms with commitment, which is is a big theme in my life of late. Is there a reason for that uh, to be a theme in your life of late? Well, Carrie, yeah, Carrie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Carrie has created that issue for me. Um, (laughs) I did not create that issue. (laughs) No, no, I meant in that um, I I actually want to uh, come to terms uh, with (laughs) commitment because of Carrie and um and we bought we bought a house this last year and um, that was a big kind of psychological process uh besides just uh the whole (laughs) financial process and searching process um and so those themes kind of popped out in the songs and um that the title man of many moons pulled from a song called man of many moons where that that most directly deals with that subject Every morning shines a brand new light A brand new light, yeah, brand new light Every morning shines a brand new light It's a whole new day somehow But right now I've got it all worked out i got it all worked out, yeah, it's all worked out Right now I've got it all worked out, I got it all worked out right now. So do you do your writing ever together since you're, uh, as you said, friends and you like each other? Is this, <laughs> oh. uh, or is it just always a solitary thing? We do a little bit. We started more recently, I guess this, this year, this past year, we've... Uh, started doing it a little more and it's uh danny is is um a little bit more controlling than i am so i don't help him very much with his songs it's more of a solitary (laughs) process for me although different stages in the process um can be more inclusive than others we we had a little time at home um 
just before this tour started, it was the biggest chunk we've had um, together at home in a while. And we had we started having weekly songwriter get-togethers um, with some of our Austin songwriting friends, and that made it a little bit more of a collaborative process. And it wasn't always like writing songs together from scratch, but coming coming to the group or coming to each other with some songs that had gotten to a particular point and wanted some feedback and collaboration. So sometimes it's just in the, in the refinement stage. Not it's not really co-writing so much. Mm-hmm. I think we should try to co-write a song though. Do you think we'd like each other afterwards? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> These are risks that you're discussing here. Risks. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest risk is a blank page at the end, so that's not too dangerous, I don't think. A blank page and recriminations. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> These are not your first albums. Tell me about the ways that your writing has changed or how your songwriting has evolved from where you started to where you are now. There's different elements to it. One thing I'm learning is a large part of the product that comes out of writing is just kind of the result of what the process is itself. And as our lifestyles have changed from, you know, being at home a lot more with regular jobs and kind of regular schedule and, um, in a lot of ways, I was a more regular writer back then, and um, then you start traveling all the time, and you have to learn to kind of incorporate that road time, the drive time, into like having writing be kind of a mental process while you're driving. And some people are better at that than other people, and so the kinds of songs that come out are in a large part a product of the kind of time you can spend with the songs. Is there a song on this most recent album that really exemplifies that for you, where you say this is a a new kind of song, or at least it felt new for you because of the different kind of writing that you're doing with more traveling? I'd say all of them in the sense that, um, for the most part, for me anyway, I'm just speaking for myself, um, the songs start as one line that I catch in a little quiet moment on the road, and I don't really have time to sit with it right then. So um, I'll come home um, with a few various snippets of things. And then by then I've had more time to sort of sit with them and let them ferment. And the songs end up being a little bit more linear um, and sort of make sense to me. Whereas when I was writing quicker um, on the fly, as soon as something hit me, um, I think they had a little bit more of an intuitive I would just kind of follow where the words would lead me because I didn't have, I hadn't had three months at that point to sit with a line and try to figure out what it meant. Um, but no, no particular song jumps out at me except that all of them sort of followed that process a little bit more. And Carrie, how's that for you? Is that the same sort of <laughs> experience or something different? No, it is a pretty similar experience. He, he, you did really well answering that question. Thanks, Carrie. <laughs> And there's your first collaboration. (laughs) She said you did well on that one. (laughs) I will just attest to the fact that it's very difficult to write on the road. And I find myself, especially when I'm traveling alone, it's different when Danny and I are traveling together. But when I'm traveling alone, I I have my little uh, handheld recorder. And it's the same thing that Danny said. I'll I'll record one line onto my phone and um, I'll get back from a tour and have a bunch of those little one-liners to work with. And... um, and hopefully a song comes out when, when I'm home for a month or so. It's uh, I definitely, I find myself more than anything just writing less than I used to because of the 300 days of travel. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of travel. Yeah, it's been a lot of travel for both of us, for sure. Oh, I think there's one other like kind of trajectory that changes over time, too, which is that like at, 
first you're sort of writing for yourself and the people just sort of close in your life and then there comes a point that you realize you're writing for audiences and and then I, like once the label comes around like it's a, it's impossible to turn these little filters off in your head of um, I wonder how this is this song's going to be received on stage or on a on a record is the label going to be able to do anything with this song or this these kinds of songs and so over time that sort of changes the trajectory of the kinds of songs you write in subtle ways yeah it's kind of a different pressure too i think early on a lot of the songs were like very personal songs and and then I think in reaction to putting those personal songs out in public and being pretty vulnerable with that, they start getting kind of coded and complex. And then you, know, you kind of find a little bit of security in yourself eventually with audiences. And then the songs kind of open back up and get a little bit more personal again um, over time. Yeah. Is there a song that you think you'll be playing in Columbus that you two have a particular connection to that really is something you always bring out? We, we sing harmonies together on a lot of uh, each other's songs. There's a couple. There's there's one, um, actually the title track from Danny's last record, Instead the Forest Rose to Sing, has a song on it that's a kind of a boisterous number that I, I don't know how to describe it, but we usually do it when we're together because of the there's a big part for me on it and... Um, and there's some songs where, like, thematically, the other one is a major part of the song, and so those are fun to do together. Like, Houses Sing on my new record is about that sort of house hunting process and commitment process. Uh, so that one's fun to do when we're together. I can see my daughter swinging in the shade of every tree. Can't you hear them houses sing? Can't you hear them houses sing? And I can move a mountain when the mountain moves in me. I can hear the song "Lift Up the Anchor" for me on the record is one that I love singing with Danny. There's just a certain feeling in that song that singing with him just makes it a really even a more emotional song for me. Backyards are flooding, I go a-flowing away Lift up the anchor, I'll be wild in my ways Who's that pretty girl, she's gonna floatin' I thank you very much for talking to us today on Writer's Talk, and we're looking forward to you coming to Columbus to do a six-string concert on February 26th. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much for inviting us. We're really looking forward to being back yeah, up there. Yeah, thank you, Doug. This has been great. On the other side of where I want to be Looking for a reason Been looking for a light Been looking for a weightless heart been trying to treat you right so lift up the anchor it's been raining for days the backyards are flooding i'll go flown away lift up the anchor i'll be wild in my ways who's that pretty
You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Ohio State University Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing. For more from my guests, OSU Professor Richard Shields and February 26th six-string performers Danny Schmidt and Carrie Elkin, visit www.writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing and the Ohio Channel, where you can watch our videos at ohiochannel.org. You can also learn more about Writer's Talk at facebook.com slash writer's talk. And while we're talking about social media, if you'd like to get to know more about social media, such as Facebook, register for the Digital Media in a Social World Conference, April 1st and 2nd at Ohio State at dmsw.osu.edu. After OSU President Gordon Gee opens the conference, past Wired and current Boing Boing editor Mark Frauenfelder will give the keynote and discuss how you can find meaning in a throwaway world by creating your own projects. He'll then give a workshop on how to make your own cigar box guitar, just like the one he played on the Colbert Report. We'll have presentations and talks from dozens of OSU and regional folks interested in social media, including Doral Chenoweth, the producer of the Ted Williams Golden Voice viral video, and the OSU students behind the Ohio Union Don't Stop Believing video, And both of these have gotten millions of hits, so they are sure to have very interesting perspectives about what social media is, what it can do, and how it affects other varieties of media and businesses. So if you're thinking about getting into social media, this is the conference to do it, especially since it's all free. So that's April 1st and 2nd at The Ohio State University. Join me next week for the second part of my discussion with Richard Shields as we delve into the surprising politics of the Newark Earthworks, in which a country club mysteriously acquired 100 years of leasing rights from the Ohio Historical Society to some of the few remaining Native American earthworks in Ohio. Until then, this is Doug Dangler from the fourth floor of Mendenhall Lab on beautiful Ohio State University's campus telling you to keep writing.